Hey, and welcome to RRJ Off Leash. In this episode, we're talking about Indigenous coverage, what it means to cover Indigenous issues in Canada, and the treatment of Indigenous people in journalism. Today, myself, Eternity, will be hosting, and joining me is Laura Hensley, also part of this year's Masthead. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, Laura? Hi, everyone. I'm Laura, and I'm currently the department's editor for the spring 2016 issue of the Ryerson Review of Journalism, and I'm very happy to be here today. We're starting the show off today by talking to Stevie Cameron, an award-winning Canadian investigative journalist and best-selling author whose work has been featured in the Globe and Mail and Maclean's. She'll tell us about her 2011 book, On the Farm, Robert William Picton and the Tragic Story of Vancouver's Missing Women, and what she learned about Indigenous coverage while putting it together. We'll also talk to Laura Heidenheim, a Ryerson student who made a documentary on a missing and murdered Indigenous woman. And later on, we'll be joined by Erin Sylvester, who is our head of research at the RRJ, and she's writing her feature on Indigenous coverage. She'll tell us a little bit about her experience traveling to Piawanek to get the scoop. So, Laura, shall we get started? Yes, let's do this. Joining us now is Stevie Cameron, an investigative reporter who wrote the 768-page book On the Farm, Robert William Picton and the Tragic Story of Vancouver's Missing Women. In 2007, Robert Picton was convicted of second-degree murder in relation to six women and sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole for 25 years. He was also charged in the deaths of an additional 20 women, but those charges were stayed in 2010. He confessed to killing 49 women from as long ago as the early 90s, many of which were from the downtown east side known for its drugs and prostitution. So Stevie is here with us in studio to talk about her thoughts on compiling the book and what she learned about covering Indigenous issues on the downtown east side of Vancouver. Welcome. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for coming. So first off, I have to say that your book was incredible. It was fantastic and compelling, and I read it in two days. That long, long book? <laughs> yes, two days. Oh, that's good to hear. I loved it. I was on a cruise ship, and I didn't even go in the pool. I just sat by the pool side and read the book. So it was a fantastic book, and I'm wondering what made you want to tell the story of Robert Picton and the missing and murdered women. Well, a couple of things. One is that I, when I was running a magazine called Elm Street, I was following the story of the missing women in ba Vancouver. It was long before Picton was ever arrested. And I uh, asked a, another writer to do a story for me on it. And we became very, very involved in that story, really interested. And so uh, then later on, uh, out of the blue, uh, my agent phoned me and said that Random House wanted me to do a book on this. After, this was after Picton was arrested. And I said, I'll do it. And she said, you're out of your mind. You're in Vancouver. How can you do it? It's going to take forever. And I said, I'll do it. I wouldn't miss doing this. So that's how I came to do it. I was asked to do it. But another thing was that uh, for many, many years, I ran a shelter at my church, St. Andrew's, uh, the corner of King and Simcoe downtown. And so I was very comfortable with dealing with pe street people, people who were mentally ill, people who were sick. And I, I loved running that program. I loved working there. And so I knew that I could do it. I knew I could manage in the downtown east side with the community there. 
So can you talk a little bit about, so you said you have this experience working with people who might be experiencing tough circumstances. Mm -hmm. How important was it for you to get to know the women who were murdered and missing and sort of tell their story and approach it from a humanistic perspective? Can you talk a little bit about your the relationship that you developed with these women? Well, I, I don't think I could have done that without the help of a, an amazing woman called Elaine Allen. And she ran the drop-in center for the women in the downtown east side. Uh, and I called Elaine to see if she'd help me, and she said yes. And she'd read some of my stuff, and she was friendly. And so she was at my side for all those eight years. I mean, Elaine, I could not have done it without her. She knew all the women, and uh, she introduced me to people. Um, she introduced me to a woman who was in charge, who was native, a native uh, woman from one of the uh, bands out in the islands, in Vancouver Islands. and. Um, uh, she, she was also at my side all those years and introduced me to, she and Elaine introduced me to the Native women on the downtown east side. They became friends. I learned about their kids and so on. And then they started telling me about their sister who was murdered by Picton or their cousin or their girlfriend or whatever. So I had a community in the downtown east side that explained these women to me. And on top of that, of course, I had all the testimony I heard in the preliminary hearing which went on for some years. And one of the things I learned is that in a preliminary hearing, you learn so much more than is ever revealed in the actual uh, trial. Uh, the trial judge got rid of a lot of information. No, we won't have that. We're not going to do that. We're not going to use that. Because the, the lawyers would fight to keep information out of it, and they often won. So the prelim was amazing and uh, the women who helped me and the families who helped me I had a I had a whole team and when we spoke earlier you mentioned I mentioned that you know the Robert Picton case it's one of those cases where um, we talk a lot about indigenous missing and murdered women um, and you said there are some misconceptions about framing the case that way what are those just that all the women in the downtown east side who died and all of his victims were indigenous women they weren't uh, and uh, I brought in some tables today to show you uh, statistics uh, that well you can you can see the the numbers themselves, but an awful lot of them were indigenous, and uh, they're f they were very interesting. A, a number of them came from Alberta, and I met many of the family members. And what it, uh, amazed me about the family members of these indigenous women were how willing they were to share what exactly had happened to their girls. You know, I was a I was an addict. I gave my daughter uh, drugs. You know, I've never forgiven myself. Uh, grandmothers who gave their grandchildren drugs. You know, girls who were on the street. And it, interesting, I met a man. He phoned me up a few months ago, and he was the brother of one of these women and works here in Toronto. And he wanted to talk to me, and to listen to these people talk about generations of drug use and abuse and poverty and grief uh, was astounding that they trusted me. That's interesting. And and why do you think that the Picton case was almost framed as this indigenous, indigenous issue? Because most people think that the uh, only people who are on the downtown east side working okay. as prostitutes are uh, indigenous women. And that's not true. I mean, a percentage are. And mm -hmm. I, do, I, I don't know uh, what the percentages are, but I would say that there are just as many or more white women, uh, not so many black women. 
They're women who have been abused at home. Some of them came from wealthy families. One woman who was killed by Picton was a millionaire. Right. You know, she came from an expensive, a very expensive background, private school, and so on, and uh, she died. But most of them were abused. Uh, it didn't matter what race or color they were, by their families or, or boyfriends. In terms of speaking with you and telling their stories, do you think that the reason that perhaps some indigenous families were more likely to speak up is because they wanted their voices heard? Or, you know, is there any relationship between building that connection and trust with you and having their stories actually be heard in, in larger stream media? I think that we just got on. Okay. You know, I was a mother. I have two daughters. I'm older than a lot of reporters. Uh, we, com we were comfortable with each other. <laughs> and uh, I loved the girls. I loved the girls on the downtown east side. I, we laughed. We'd, you know, I'd take them out for supper, and we'd have such a good time. And they'd talk about their kids, and then they'd show me their grandchildren's little gifts that they sent to them in their little rooms in the downtown east side. And then they'd say to me, I'm really sorry. I have to go. I have a date. They called yeah. their guys dates. And, mm -hmm. yeah. and then I'd say, do you, you know, how do you feel about that? And she said, well, they'd say something like, if I don't go, my date will beat me up. My, right. you know, my, my guy will beat me up. They were all run by pimps. Mm. You know, it was a, a terrible situation, but I think why I loved it so much was that these women who had nothing, they lost their children, they didn't have a dime, they were sick, they loved each other. They, they were able to laugh. They were able to enjoy the small bits of time that were lovely. Mm -hmm. And they made great friends, and they had lawyers who looked after them, and, and there were street nurses who adored them. You know, there were people who did love them and mm -hmm. uh, who really did care, and their families cared. And um, I'm going to get to the chart in a, just a minute, <laughs> but <laughs> it's a very chart. long chart. We have a very long lengthy list of um, all of Stevie's research, but before I get to that, you're very critical of the Vancouver Police Department in in the book, um, and I guess what you're suggesting is that they were a gross fault in, you know, not protecting these women and not taking the issue seriously. So I'm kind of wondering if they had any reaction to your book when it came out. Not that I heard of. No, I mean, I never had a police officer come up to me and say, gee, I really liked your book, or, you know, what did you think you were doing? The awkward thing that happened to me in, with regard to the police was that the police chief was removed. I mean, the, the police chief that really refused to do much, and uh, he, got a, he was the one who got in a terrible fight with this great forensic anthropologist, Kim Rosmo, whom I describe in the book, and so he was eventually fired. The person who came in to replace him was my cousin. Oh. Jamie Graham. Can you believe it? He was a RCMP officer, and they wanted somebody to come in and run the Vancouver Police that wasn't part of the Vancouver Police. Right. So having my cousin running it was a real disadvantage for me because I couldn't talk to him, and I couldn't go near any of the uh, cops anymore because you know it would look as if there was some preference there. Mm -hmm. So that was very awkward. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, then, so back to the chart then. Um, so you brought in this chart for us to see um, with all the names of the women um, who have been murdered, missing, or possible mm. victims of Robert Picton. And so can you maybe tell us about that chart, how it's helped you, and how long it took you to make this very long, lengthy chart? Oh, it was, it saved my life. I never 
realized everywhere I went, when I would go back out to Vancouver for a few months or even a few weeks, or I was teaching in the East Coast for a while in a journalism program, I put those big sheets of paper up in in uh, order, time order, all around the room where I was living in at the time. And I could follow, you know, everybody's name. It was done, uh, I can't remember whether I did it alphabetically or chronologically, but, uh, and, it, and I was able to put in uh, where the girl lived. And we all, by the way, we all called them girls. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a, because we were not being uh, responsible or we, uh, it was not the thing to do. We we loved them, and right. we, we talked about the girls. Well, these are the ones that died. So I could follow the girls, and I knew where they lived, where they, you know, when they disappeared, uh, where they came from, and I kept all that information, in the, as you know, in, these, in this chart. And every once in a while, I'd have to change it and update it and so on, but it just meant I could spread it around the room, all in chronological order. And uh, it had, it also had, you know, what the evidence was, and sometimes, because of uh, something I heard in court or something that somebody told me, I would adjust it. I would have to redo it. But it was the only way to keep control of this huge mass of information that I had mm -hmm. and keep it chronologically and neatly and easy to find. I'm just curious, having you know followed this for eight years and written about it, has it how has it affected you as a person? Have you lost any faith in humanity, or if you've seen things in a different way than you did before? Like, how has this impacted you? I just—it's the best thing I've ever done. It's the thing I loved the most that I've ever done. Of all the books I've written, of all the work I've done, it's the one I I love the most. I felt so privileged to be able to do it. But my heartbreak in this story, aside from what happened to these women, which is bad enough, was the trial. Because the trial judge decided, unlike the preliminary, preliminary hearing judge, who was wonderful, but the trial judge uh, decided to remove, to bring it down to just six. So you had an aristocracy at that point of victimhood. Six, the six were the aristocrats of this case. And then there were all the other girls all my girls. They're out there. No one cared about them anymore. I mean, their families, we all cared about them, but it was the six. So those families of the six got all them, you know, they were always in front of the microphone. They were always being talked to. They were wonderful people. But you did get a sense, and I certainly, the other families were very upset that they felt their girl didn't get her time in court, that they didn't get their time in court. And uh, so, and all the evidence that came along with those those other women who were left aside, of course, didn't appear in court. It was just the evidence around the six. Can you believe that there was a, at the very end of it, uh, the jury just said not guilty. And the police officer who was in charge of the case was sitting beside me and he fell off his chair. And people started to scream. They were so upset. It was disgraceful. And this was the trial. The pre-trial uh, hearing was, I thought, very well done, but the trial was, was a disgrace. And yet people said to me, well, we couldn't have had all those girls, you know, charge, you know, go through a trial where all of those girls were represented, you know, all the people. Picked and killed them all. And uh, I said, yeah, you should have done that. Suppose it would have taken another year or two. So what? Anyway, we just had the six, so they were the ones that everyone remembers, and mm -hmm. nobody remembers the others. Mm -hmm. Thank you for joining us, Stevie.
Thank you for having me in. It was lovely to have you. Thank you. Thank you. Joining us now is Laura Heidenheim. Uh, Laura is a third-year radio and television student at Ryerson. She recently made a short documentary called The Memory of Sonia Sywink. Sonia was murdered in 1994 in London, Ontario, and her case was never solved. Hi, Laura. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Um, first of all, congrats on your documentary. It was beautifully done. I watched it. It was really, really beautiful. Um, if you could just talk a little bit about what inspired you to take on that subject matter. As media students, we notice that a lot of what exists for these women in the media is um, very cold police reports, blurry photos. There's not a lot that humanizes them, and you almost sort of um, re-victimize the victim when you create content like that. Um, so our goal was to purely um, sort of create a piece that would respect their life, that would you know completely humanize them, and really serve the family and the community members who might need something like this for closure purposes. So how did you initially hear of Sonia, and how did you get in contact with her family and start this project? So in September, we started searching for families. Um, it was a little bit uh, intimidating because we didn't want to approach anyone and make them upset, obviously. So we were looking for someone who already was outspoken in the community. And um, Sonia's family, her sister, her brother, they're very active in the community. And there was actually an article on Vice um, about Sonia's story. So that's where we first sort of got in contact with the family. I noticed in the documentary, you didn't talk much about Sonia's struggles that she was dealing with leading up to her death. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk about your decision to leave out explicit details about what she was experiencing? Yeah, so I mean, throughout the creation of the documentary, we learned about her life. We touched on it briefly that she had some addiction issues, but we didn't go into that because that already exists. You know, there's already the police reports, like I said, and you know, when the news will come out with articles about these women, they include that type of information. Um, but that's not what we wanted to focus on. We wanted to focus on um, what made her laugh, um, what her siblings loved about her, what her classmates loved about her. That was the sort of piece we were focusing on. And, and you know, and, and criticism that we get, oftentimes people don't appreciate that because that's sort of what makes the story, right? Um, but for us, what's more important is was to create something that was just, you know, in honor of her memory. Right. So could you talk maybe a bit about, you know, some misconceptions about Indigenous women that you may have encountered while researching the story or that you feel are portrayed and continued to be narrated through the media and how we talk about these missing and murdered women? Yeah, I guess a big thing is that there isn't people aren't educated on the fact that um, this is rooted to kind of Canada's first social injustice, you know, um, when the indigenous people were sort of cheated out of their land and you know the residential schools and th this is a this is a big historical thing and people forget about that i think um you know and and the fact that there's over a thousand women whose cases are you know either they're wrongly um solved or you know they they're they or they're forgotten about you know like it's it's a systemic thing you know, and, and I think that that's what people are missing out. They don't pay attention to that, that it's a systemic thing that's existed for a very long time. I mean, it's built on what our country is built on, right? Mm. Um, and also I would say that, you know, there is a stigma sort of that, you know, um, Indigenous communities aren't 
educated or I don't know that they are a victim but I can tell you from our involvement with the indigenous community there are like there's strong people a lot of strong leaders in that community um and you know my entire team were non-indigenous we're all settlers right Mm -hmm. so for us as settlers, it's important to involve other settlers in the conversation because the indigenous community is already talking about this. They're already acknowledging, you know, the historical aspects, you know, mm-hmm. but it's the rest of us who kind of need to catch up, I think, with that conversation. So that's why we as settler students embarked on this because we get asked that a lot too. You know, none of you are indigenous. What lens are you going to tell this through? Why are you going to do that? Okay. Well, I think that's interesting about your documentary, too, is that, you know, you were humanizing someone. And I know you talked about not wanting to present her as a victim, but was there anything else? Was there any other significance in kind of telling her story through a more positive lens that you wanted to achieve through your documentary? Yeah, I would say that it was that, um, you know, we don't we don't go into we don't there's the opening um, scene. You know, we have some credits and it does touch on sort of the political and historical. It's like just a couple of lines. But after that, we don't, we don't, nothing, none of the content is very political because what we're hoping is that when you watch this, you will become emotional and you'll think, wow, that could have been my sister, that could have been Mm -hmm. my daughter. And and we're hoping that, you know, if you watch this and then you hear something in the news or you, you do start looking into the political history of this, it might move you more to become more involved or at least to pay attention to the issue. Right. Well, thank you so much, Laura, for joining us. Um, It was great to have you here. And again, congratulations. Thank you. Thanks. We are now joined by Erin Sylvester, the head of the RRJ, who is writing her feature feature piece on Indigenous coverage in Piawanek. In the spirit of Indigenous reporting, we've asked Erin to come in and talk about her experience writing the story. Hi, Erin. Hi. Thanks for joining us. Of course. So, Erin, you are working on a story about Indigenous journalism in Piawanek. Mm-hmm. So, can you tell us a bit about why you chose Piawanek or why you didn't choose Piawanek? <laughs> sure. Um, so, my story is about Indigenous reporting in Canada. And as part of that story, um, I visited Piawanek, Ontario, which is in very, very northern Ontario, up near Hudson Bay. And um, I didn't actually pick Piawanek. I had no idea that Piawanek existed before I went there. Um, but it was chosen for me because it was one of the communities in northern Ontario that had that was hosting some journalism trainers over about an eight-month period. So uh, the trainees in Piawanek had, had built a little website and had done quite a number of stories. So I went up to sort of see what they were up to up there. And so when you got there, what was it like being in this rural community? Because it's pretty isolated, no? Can you talk a little bit about your experience there? Yeah, for sure. Um, So I'm from Toronto, so it was definitely a very different place that I'm used to. Um, There are no roads out of the community. It's one of the fly-in communities in northern Ontario. So you get there on a little propeller plane. I was in a little eight-seat Cessna. And I'm not a very good flyer at the best of times, like in very steady (laughs) jets. So I was very nervous on that plane trip. I was not feeling as uh, super great. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a little bit rocky, the plane ride down. And then the runway in Piwanek is just sort of packed dirt, which was interesting for me to see. Um, and there are no roads out of the community except for an ice road in the winter. Uh, so that was interesting to just know that the only way to leave is by helicopter. And I did see one of the helicopters take off right behind the band office, which was kind of cool. Um, I saw 
more dead moose and caribou than I ever had before. <laughs> so that was interesting. Um, yeah, it was a it was an interesting place, and it's a very small town, only two hundred and fifty people. So mm-hmm. I did get to meet like a lot of a lot of uh, big percentage, I guess, of the community up there. Wow. Yeah. And was there something maybe that you can tell us without giving away too much of your story that you learned in that tiny week that you were there about um, the indigenous reporting there or what's going on? Yeah, no, I did. I learned a lot about the kind of stories that people that were uh, journalism trainees wanted to write. And it wasn't necessarily the kind of stories that I expected, which was interesting. And that sort of was interesting for my story to know that, you know, I might go in assuming like, oh, you're going to want to write about politics and you're going to want to write about, you know, sort of resistance and and corruption. And those things are true. Those are stories that people want to cover. But there's a lot more stories to tell, um, obviously. So that was sort of interesting to see what kind of stories people want to do. And Erin, so you already told us about the plane trip, um, and we know you were a little apprehensive about getting <laughs> on the plane. Can you describe the plane for our listeners? I can try. Um, so it was very small. It was about, I think, eight seats. Um, and there were four of us on the plane out of Timmins. So you can't fly directly from Toronto to Pewanek. So I flew to Timmins and stayed overnight. So there were four of us on the plane. And the the company that I was flying with stops over in Moose Factory, Moosini, on the way up to Pewanek. So we dropped off the two two people there and then we kept going me and an elder from from Pewanek. and it's actually incredible the views outside of the plane and you can see both windows on either side of the plane because it's super small and you can't stand up in the plane either and I whacked my head on the top when I got <laughs> off in Moosini because I forgot um, so it's like a little plane you like crawl in basically and then you sit near a little seat and you can see everything and it's just like tons of boreal forest and and muskeg and you can see mine uh, mining up near Timmin. So that's kind of like, it's a really interesting flight, very slow little plane, (laughs) sort of propelling along, Um, very tippy when you're landing, like you're really rocking back and forth in this little plane. And you can see the pilots um, flying it and they were sort of steadying themselves on the front of the plane. I was so nervous the whole time. (laughs) But yeah, we landed. It was okay. (laughs) So I'm assuming Piawanek is not, you know, like a tourist destination. Um, and you said the population was 250. Something like that, yeah. So did you, you know, when you were there, I assume you sort of ran into the same people. What was the community feel like? Like what what, what did it, well, what do you think living in Piawanek would be like from your brief experience there? Um, I think it's a really interesting place. People were very welcoming, which was lovely. Um, they have a lot of sort of, evening activities for the community and stuff. I did a square dancing while I was there. That was a lot of fun. Okay. So <laughs> then they have uh, like, you know, after school activities for the kids. So in that way, like it's a lot like any other place, I guess. Um, but yeah, it was nice when I was there, actually, the school was celebrating its, I want to say 20th anniversary. So they had a big cookout and everyone went to that. And that was just kind of like a nice community event and everyone like had caribou meat from like caribou that they'd killed which was something did you try it i did not no (laughs) no i don't eat meat which was i got made fun of a lot that week (laughs) (laughs) no meat in general not caribou meat yeah (laughs) it did smell really good though i was tempted all right well thanks for joining us erin and good luck on your story thank you we're glad that you're back safe on the tippy (laughs) plane Aaron's story on Indigenous reporting in Piawanek will be featured in the spring issue of the RRJ coming soon. And that's a wrap for today's episode. We want to thank Stevie, Aaron, and Laura for speaking with us today and sharing their insights about Indigenous coverage. Join us in two weeks for our next episode, the topic of which will be announced on our Twitter handle, at Ryerson Review. 
Until next time, signing off, this is RJ Off Leash.